I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist, where we highlight what podcasts we think you should listen to. And to make this show, our team listens through hours upon hours of audio content. But sometimes a few great shows will slip through the cracks. So today I'm joined by the rest of the Podcast Playlist crew to share some amazing podcasts that you may have missed. Say hi, everyone. Hello. Hi. So we're going to hear some really engaging stories today, from the mystery of a rock and roller's death, to a story of unsolved murders, to the conflict in Armenia. But first, I'm going to turn to our senior producer, Kate Evans, with a story about a scandalous college for the rich and famous, which I'm already into. Let's let's do this right now, Kate. <laughs> Tell me about this podcast. Absolutely. So I'm sharing Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. It's hosted by Lily Analik. And it tells a story of three authors who met each other at college and then went on to really influence each other's work. So that is Brett Easton Ellis, who wrote American Psycho, Jonathan Lethem, who wrote Motherless Brooklyn, and Donna Tartt, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time, The Goldfinch and The Secret History. And essentially, while they were at college together, their lives really intertwined. They were all friends and rivals at some point. They read each other's work. They influenced each other's work. And the the podcast really delves into all of that. Plus, there's lots of gossip and soapy details, which I love. And so it's a really interesting show. I learned a ton of stuff about these authors and and really just the climate of writing in the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, also, you know, I, I love anything that has like a little bit of trash, a little bit of soapy stuff. So it was the trash that captivated you? <laughs> Is that your final answer? It's trash. What? It's no, trash. no, definitely not. But, uh, you know, it, it's just a sprinkling of trash definitely helps. But yeah, I, I heard this in kind of an interesting circumstance because I went on a hiking trip last summer and I was staying in this little cabin in the woods and I promised myself I wasn't going to listen to any podcasts <laughs> during my time off. But, you know, the obsession here on the show just runs so deep. So instead I listened to this show and only this show and I was really absorbed in it and mm. it was such an enjoyable way to make your way through a series so I highly recommend it it's like a summer page turner except a podcast mm. Mm, I like that description okay let's hear a bit from the show now in this clip host Lily Analik introduces Bennington College she speaks with former students about their experiences in the school's reputation this is Jonathan's thumbnail sketch of Bennington. It was like we'd been sent to go to college at Andy Warhol's factory. And here is a brief history of Bennington's origins, courtesy of Matt Jacobson, class of 83. Bennington College came into this world in the form of a lecture given at the Colony Club in the late 20s. The Colony Club was a bastion of well-heeled women uh, left over from the days when women ran New York, as they used to say. 
It was one of those old waspy enclaves. It housed uh, the swankiest of the swank, and they had swell lunches. But I guess that's all encompassed in the word wasp. The school's first president, Robert Lee, gave an address about the new fashion in education and how it would apply to a woman's college in Vermont. It went over extremely well, by the way, a standing room only. What seemed attractive to those folks all born in the Victorian era was the fact that this was a far more casual manner of educating. The school believed more in doing than actually memorizing by rote. That was the mojo at the time. As Matt Jacobson just said, Bennington as a concept began in the Roaring Twenties. It wasn't until the dead broke thirties, though, that the concept was actualized. The school, all female, opened its doors in 1932 at the height of the Great Depression. Also, as Matt Jacobson just said, Bennington was something new, something fresh. It was based on the philosophy of educational reformer, John Dewey. Learn by doing, an edict to be followed not only by its students, but by its professors as well. Professor, I should add, is a term Bennington disdained. Bennington didn't want professors teaching. It wanted practitioners, that is, artists, teaching. The poet, W.H. Auden, had been a member of the Literature and Language Division. So had Kenneth Burke and Howard Nemirov. And essayist scholar, Stanley Edgar Hyman, husband of horror novelist and short story writer, Shirley Jackson. The Fine Arts Division had included painters Jules Olitsky and Paul Feely, sculptor Anthony Caro, critic Clement Greenberg. Eric Frome had taught psychology, Martha Graham, dance. Bennington was an immediate scandal because of its lack of grades, of requirements, of rules. This quote from an unnamed founder captures, I think, its essence. We wanted a college where a girl could hang upside down from a tree in her bloomers if she felt like it. Incidentally, boys would be allowed to hang upside down in their bloomers starting in 1969 when the school went co-ed. Bennington was, in brief, a paradox. An academic institution that scorned both academics and institutions. A college for the uncollegiate. Perfect for someone like Jonathan Lethem. I barely did graduate high school. I mean, and not in a kind of juvenile, delinquent, flagrant, you know, way, but just out of total disinterest. I'd stopped taking math classes. And I wasn't a viable college candidate in any... Uh, ordinary sense. And really, my anti-institutional bias was so powerful then that I was just ignoring the whole procedure. When music and art high school had their like college fair and everybody, all the students went to pick up the applications and talk to representatives of the different colleges, I didn't go. And my girlfriend at the time brought home a Bennington application and gave it to me and said, I think this is a place you could get into. She just spotted that I was completely ignoring the whole situation. And I think I fell in love with the idea of it because of the way the place built itself, you know, kind of no grades. And I think it was the case that Bennington would admit you without a high school diploma. Or without SAT scores, for that matter. Here's Lisa Fader, who started out class of 85, ended up class of 86. That was another thing that drew me there, no SATs. And at the time, I just really did not want to study for SATs. 
I had just embraced like punk rock and angry music. And if it wasn't cool, I wasn't interested. Like music and being cool and dressing cool were more important than my academic performance. And Bennington in the early 80s was, for all intents and purposes, self-selecting. Its acceptance rate not 100%, but close. Jonathan Latham again. I mean, the cynical view would be it was like a holding area for students whose families wouldn't have them not go to college, but were basically not going to go to college. I used to joke that it was like where the druggy sibling of the, you know, legacy Harvard or Yale family, it was like a place to hide them as opposed to just letting them loose on the streets of New York City. And in another sense, it was almost designed very generously as a place to be in not college college. Even within it, there were these pockets of indulgence, which I ran for, I made a beeline for them, I sensed them. Gunnar Schoenbeck's music class where you played his invented instruments. So everyone was a permanent beginner because you were taking a class in objects that the professor had invented. And everyone knew you passed the course whether you ever showed up a single day or not. I thought that was a fascinating idea. And so I wanted to test it and see if it was true. So I went the first day to see him welcome us and show us the instruments and I never turned up again. This not college college was expensive. More expensive than any college college. According to a 1981 New York Times article, Bennington's tuition wasn't among the highest in the country. It was the very highest. Unsurprisingly, many of the students it attracted were filthy, stinking, rich. Brick Smith. So, like, at Bennington, there were, I'm telling you, proper heiresses. Like, the Barbara Huttons of my generation were there. The Campbell Soup family, the DuPonts, Ariadne Getty, Steely Posturepedic. I mean, you name it, it was like a who's who. There was Princess there who would be helicoptered in. There was the heiress to Baskin Robbins, which always fascinated me. You know, I was like, do you want different flavor at your house? There was an heiress of a very, very famous, hugely wealthy family whose name everyone would know. We were all kind of fascinated by her. What do you mean, kind of? We were fascinated by her. And um, the rumor was she had a $100 a day cocaine habit. And the rumor also was that every week her trustee would come to school and like dole out only so much money. So, you know, I remember the trustee's name was Roger and Roger was coming and this girl would always panic. But back to the filthy stinking rich, they're different from you and me. As Todd O'Neill, Bennington class of 83, had he graduated, can attest. There was a girl at Bennington I ended up going to visit her in her apartment on Park Avenue. I think it was nine bedrooms. It didn't seem to belong with the word apartment. And her father was indeed an art collector. I don't know if he gave her the money to buy a Picasso etching for Christmas each year. But in any case, she had purchased some Picasso etchings on her own. It was her hobby. And her father's hobby were buying Picassos, you know. Jonathan Latham attended a majority-minority public elementary school in Brooklyn. Then later, the High School of Music and Art, also public, but in Manhattan. Here he is on the culture shock that still hasn't quite worn off. 
it's hard to know how to explain how <laughs> helpless I was on arrival at Bennington without understanding that I'd almost never even set foot inside the building of a private educational institution. And here I was at school with these kids, most of whom would probably say the same thing about public schools, that they were mysterious edifices that they would never dream of entering. I had been part of a world where just being white was privilege, but the milieu was of a kind of a, the term inner city is no longer the right one because it's got queasy associations. But I was in a redlined neighborhood where many of the homes were abandoned buildings with concrete blocks bricking up the window faces. The schools I went to, there were impassioned teachers. These were places that the city and the society had signed off on. The world I knew just wasn't congruent with Bennington. It was like I was smuggled in from an alien world. That was Jonathan Lethem being extremely overdramatic. <laughs> I love it. That was Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. It's a C-13 original podcast, a division of Cadence 13. It's hosted by Lily Analik, who executive produced the show with Chris Corcoran. It's directed by Zach Levitt. That clip was picked by podcast playlist senior producer extraordinaire, Kate Evans. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. So, Leah, since I went first, now it's your turn. What's the show you wanted to share with us today? So the podcast is called The Freeway Phantom, and it's about a series of unsolved murders that happened in Southeast D.C. in the 70s. Six black girls went missing and were found murdered. All of their bodies were found on the side of the same freeway, and their killer was then nicknamed The Freeway Phantom. And their cases were never solved, despite the fact that the killer sent the police a note claiming responsibility and even called some of the victims' families. After I saw that you recommended this, I listened to the first couple of episodes, and I'm really enjoying it so far, too. But I thought it was an interesting choice for you because I know that you don't tend to go for true crime mm -hmm. podcasts. So why did this one stand out to you? It's true. I would never have even... Uh, bothered with this, it, mostly because of the true crime thing. Like, I just don't really tend to gravitate there. But mm -hmm. to be honest, my sister recommended it. And I wasn't going to listen to it because, like I said, it is true crime, but she kept pestering me. So I gave it a try. And, you know, it's a really extraordinary story. It's a brutal story, but one that I feel really deserves more attention, especially because these families have been waiting 50 years for this killer to be found. And I was also really drawn in by the fact that the lead investigator was a black woman. And I found that pretty extraordinary for the time period. You know, this is the 70s we're talking about. So in this clip we're about to play, host select Headley explains what she's learned about the case. Plus, we'll meet that lead investigator I just mentioned, Romaine Jenkins. And just a warning, this story includes content that will be disturbing for some listeners. If you look up Freeway Phantom, you might find out a little bit about this strange and tragic case, but in all likelihood, you're not going to find out much. 
You'll learn that during the early 1970s, a serial killer murdered at least six young black girls in the Washington, D.C. area. You might learn their names. You might hear about a strange note left by the killer. You may even come across a few suspects, but not much else. And that's what makes the case of the Freeway Phantom so very, very strange. My name is Celeste Headley. I'm a journalist, author, and longtime public radio host based in Washington, D.C. Over the years, I've covered many stories of people of color going missing in this city, a phenomenon that absorbed the public consciousness in 2017 on social media. When the Washington, D.C. Police Department tried to raise awareness about missing children and teenagers by posting their images on social media, the campaign backfired, sparking some national outrage and fears of an epidemic of missing children of color. One of the most popular stories on our NBC app this week is about missing girls. Our story debunks a fake report that 14 girls went missing from D.C. in just one day. D.C. police told us they're simply sharing missing person cases more often on social media. It all started when a post went viral all over social media, saying young black girls were going missing at an alarming rate in D.C. And amidst the firestorm, that particular post was proven to be untrue. However, behind the social media frenzy was a certain reality that for decades, people of color, particularly women, have been abducted or killed across the capital region and their cases rarely resolved or even fully investigated. That fact may be why most people have never heard of the Freeway Phantom case, a case that involved six young black girls who were all kidnapped, killed, and discarded along the DC freeways in the early 1970s, a case that was never solved and sadly quickly forgotten. But in the wake of the D.C. missing girls conversation, people started thinking about this case again. One of those people was fellow D.C. journalist Cheryl Thompson, who used to write for the Washington Post. While I was actually working on another story at the Post, I stumbled across this press release of these six little black girls. And the photo struck me because it was in black and white. And so the first thing I thought of, oh my God, this is old. Like, what is this? And then you just saw these six faces of these six little black girls and you could tell by their hairstyle and, you know, the bows in their hair. And it sort of gave me pause. And I was like, what, what is this? And why are these murders unsolved? And so that's what sort of prompted me. In 2018, Cheryl published a groundbreaking article about this seemingly uncovered story. And that's how we and thousands of others found out about the Freeway Phantom case. She says the process was both difficult and significant. What it was about it, again, was the fact that, like, how could this be, like, six little black girls murdered in the nation's capital? And so then I started researching it and saw that there had been stories, some stories over the years, but it had mainly faded from public view. I asked one of our researchers at the Washington Post to go back. I said, can you find some stories, some microfiche from, you know, back in the early 70s when this happened. And there were stories, but it, we were really hard-pressed to find stories that focused just on these girls. In the early 1970s, it was the Vietnam War, and, you know, D.C. was the place where protesters came. There was a lot going on in the nation's capital during that time. So when murders happened, when killings happened, 
it made the news, but there were so many killings at the time that they just didn't get the individual attention. Like when I found one of the cases, it was lumped in with some other homicides in the district. But that's just the way it was. I mean, this was the, the murder capital of the country back in the day. Cheryl decided to reach out to some people, and she says her best sources have always been the detectives who worked on the case. I have called some of my sources over the years for stuff that might have happened 30 years ago, and they remember details, right? I'm like, how do you remember this stuff? So I then reached out to Detective Jenkins, Romaine Jenkins, because I figured, man, this is a woman, a black woman, and I know she had to take an interest in this for a lot of reasons, and some of which were the very ones that I mentioned. These kids could have been her daughters. Detective Romaine Jenkins was a name that we kept hearing. We spoke with one of the investigators, Romaine Jenkins, and she, she was like, if it was dictated. There was also another woman by the name of Romaine Jenkins, who was a sex squad detective. One of our Pick apart those files that Romaine's got. It would be an exciting interview. Romaine Jenkins, she was one of the best. She knew all the dope dealers. She knew all their girlfriends. She was friends with all of them. She got the latest scoop. She knew who pulled the trigger. We decided to give Romaine Jenkins a call. Hello, is this Romaine Jenkins? Yes. And we soon realized just how much she knew about this case. I investigated many serial rape cases, and none of them are like this. Usually there's this a similar pattern somewhere, but the only pattern you have with these cases is the fact that they were young black females. As it turns out, Romaine was the lead investigator on the Freeway Phantom case in the 1980s. That was almost 10 years after the case went cold. And she was the right person for the job. Romaine had an impressive resume up to that point. As a sergeant in the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., back in the 70s, she was the first woman and the only woman for a long time in homicide. We told Romaine that we were looking into the Freeway Phantom case, and she agreed to sit down with us. But before we made a trip to D.C. to see her, we wanted to learn more about her life and how she eventually came to investigate this case. I am a native person from Washington, D.C., I attended school here. I joined the Metropolitan Police Department June the 21st, 1965. And at that time, um, there were only about maybe 30 police females on the department, and they were housed at something called the Woman's Bureau. And they did mostly social work, abandoned children, missing children. Then they joined us with something called the Youth Division, and that was the male counterpart of the Women's Bureau. And then I stayed there for two years. And I basically investigated cases involving battered children, juvenile offenders. We did missing persons and things like that. And then Homicide decided they needed a female to handle their baby deaths and abortion cases, because at that time, abortion was illegal in the District of Columbia. So Romaine went to work in homicide. She was there for approximately four years, investigating battered children and abortion cases. After about four years in the homicide squad, I went to the 7th District, because at that time they decided they wanted to put police women in uniform and put them in the patrol division. 
And at that time, I was a supervisor. I was a sergeant because I made sergeant when I was in homicide. So they wanted to see if females could supervise males in the patrol division. I went to the 7th District, and that was quite an experience. Everything was totally new to me, but I, I made it through. During this time, Romaine got married and started a family. She eventually decided being a patrol officer wasn't what she wanted. So she applied for Sex Squad, which investigates sexually heinous crimes. And I stayed there 10 years as a supervisor. And from there, I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office where I supervised seven detectives and we handled cases. We worked up cases for the U.S. Attorney's Office. And that's basically what I did. That's basically my career. It was while in homicide in the early 70s that Romaine first heard about the so-called Freeway Phantom murders. Though other officers were assigned to the case, she helped canvas neighborhoods and became intimately familiar with the case details. Years passed, and Romaine heard little about the Freeway Phantom. Fifteen years after the murders in 1987, Romaine decided to reopen the case herself while working in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it ended up becoming the case that would consume Romaine's career and life to this day. That was Freeway Phantom. It's a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. It's hosted by Celeste Headley. The show is written by Trevor Young, Jamie Albright, and Celeste Headley. And that was my podcast pick for Underrated Podcast Gems. If you'd like to learn more about this show or anything you'll hear today, you can head to our website, cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. There you can find more details about each of our podcast picks. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Next up to share her podcast pick is associate producer Kelsey Cueva. Hey, Kelsey. Hello. Okay. What do you got for us? So the show that I have is called The Ballad of Billy Balls. It is amazing. It's a true story that takes place in New York's East Village in the early 1980s. And the show unravels this mystery behind the murder of a punk musician named Billy Balls. Okay, and how did you hear about this show? So it was actually put onto my radar after we had Nigel and Earl on from Ear Hustle on the show recently. And Nigel mm -hmm. recommended the podcast, though unfortunately we didn't have enough time to play it during their episode. But I went ahead and listened to the whole series and it was just so captivating. Wow, it must be because, it you know, it takes a lot for all of us to listen to an entire series <laughs> the whole way through. I mean, we listen to many of them, but... For it sure. must be really good. For so, sure. so what do you like about this show? Just the storytelling. The host of the show, Io Tillett Wright, is such a natural storyteller. Uh, I don't want to say 
much more beyond that because I don't want to spoil anything. It's really a show that I think listeners need to hear for themselves from the start to really appreciate how the story unfolds. So I will leave it at that. Okay, let's hear some of this. Uh, In this clip, host Io Tillett-Wright speaks with Rebecca, Billy's girlfriend, about dealing with the aftermath of his death. With Billy in the hospital, Rebecca went back to 13 Third Avenue and tried to piece together what had happened. I see Ming the super. One of the only witnesses was the building's maintenance guy, a dude named Ming. And Ming saw a cowboy-hatted person walk with Billy. They went. The way Rebecca remembers it, Ming said Billy and this man in a cowboy hat walked around the neighborhood. And they came back, they went downstairs. Then went down in the basement through a hatch in the sidewalk. Billy came up, went to the back of the Billy came back up, alone, and went into the house. And then... That dude with the cowboy hat broke down the door, shooting. So then the question became, who's the guy in the cowboy hat? That was an undercover narcotics detective. I didn't know the guy in the cowboy hat was a cop. He was an undercover narcotics detective. How do you know that? Billy told me that. And he came to see Billy in the hospital when he was alive. And he said... shot him, came to see him in the hospital? Billy said to me that the dude that shot him came to the hospital and said to him, if it was up to me, you wouldn't be in here. Rebecca realized that she needed to talk to a lawyer. And I called Mark Pines. Mark Pines Pines is a videographer that invented music video. He knew Billy and respected him. I called him and he told me two of the heaviest lawyers in New York City right off the bat because it was clearly a big civil suit, you know? and some horrible crime against Billy Balls. And they were hot on it because they saw big bucks. You know how the lawyers are, because it was an obvious civil suit. Do you know the lawyers' names? No, but it's another thing that I just can't remember because my mind has just put this out, you know? And then, Rebecca says something really weird started to happen. I did receive a creepy, threatening phone call in the night at 13 3rd Avenue. What phone calls? I can't tell you that exactly, but they were saying weird It was just short, and I can't quite remember it. It was a scare tactic. It was definitely a police-type guy. Not long after, Rebecca got the worst phone call of all. I know it was around my mother's birthday, which is June 17th. And uh, that morning, it was really weird. And out the window... 
the brick was all dusty, crumbling. You know, there was rags and rats and outside the window, and the window was all covered with grimy and the sunlight streams through all that grimy which intensifies the griminess, you know. And on the radio was Jennifer Holliday's song. And I'm telling you, you're not gonna leaving. You're the best thing I ever had. When the hospital called and told me that they had taken him to the 13th floor, yes, 13 is favorite number, for some reason, and that he started vomiting bile, which is bile is from, you know, kidneys or something, and his heart stopped. He didn't, he died. And the dude told me to come down and identify the body. That's how he phrased it. He said, can you, can you come down to identify the body of William Heitzman? And I just, of course, just went into this kind of like white Less than two weeks after Billy was shot, he was dead, and Rebecca had to go to the city morgue to identify his body. And I went with Billy's very close friend, Robbie Bowman, who was a musician, great musician. And Robbie went with me to the medical examiner on First Avenue to identify the body and the little Puerto Rican girl rolled out a gurney with a sheet over it and pulled back the sheet and there he was with the pinch of the devil and a little kind of smile of mischief and his beard was starting to have a five o'clock shadow and he had a towel wrapped turban style around the top of his head and that number on the toe and I screamed and I said he's not he's not done yet he's not done yet I went to the Actors Fund because I needed to get money for his cremation. And I explained that he was a rock and roll piano player and that he was killed and that I needed help 
with the funeral costs and the cremation, the little old lady, sweetest, tiny, tiny little old lady, arranged a check. And when I went down there to the funeral parlor, which was on 28th and Lexington, the man behind the desk, right inside the glass doors, got on the phone to call for the body to be transferred to the funeral parlor. And they told him that the body had been taken to Potter's Field. A potter's field is a cemetery where unclaimed bodies are buried in mass graves. And I said, what? What the What's the phone number? I got the number of the potter's field and I called that number. And on the other end, it was the grave diggers. And I says, I will need the body Where is the body of William Heitzman? And they laughed. They laughed on the other end of the phone. They laughed. And the bottom fell out of everything. Yeah, that podcast is art. When Kelsey first brought it up when she was producing the Ear Hustle episode, mm-hmm. I listened to some of it. And yeah, I was just really impressed by the production and the point of view and then all of the really fascinating characters yeah. in the story. Yeah. Like they really stay with mm. you. It's hard to believe that it's a true story because it's just like, it just feels like a work of fiction, but... Yeah, like a film noir. Larger you can't believe that this happened to someone in real life. Hmm. Yeah. I will say, I also purchased uh, I.O. Tillett Wright's uh, memoir, <laughs> After the Fact, an audiobook form, and it is just as captivating as the podcast. So, hmm. yeah. Okay, well, I guess I have to listen now. Yeah. <laughs> that was The Ballad of Billy Balls from Crime Town Presents in association with Cadence 13. It's hosted by I.O. Tillett Wright. Their senior producer is Austin Mitchell. The show is created by Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier. That podcast was brought to us by associate producer Kelsey Cueva. Thanks, Kelsey. Thank you. Finally, we've got producer Julian Uzielli's pick. Hey, Julian. Hey, Leah. Okay, what do you got for us? Okay, so I have uh, brought a podcast called Country of Dust. Um, So I actually found out about this from an email to our show email account, podcast playlist at cbc.ca. So that's proof for you. Um, If you email us, we do actually read the emails (laughs) and listen to the recommendations. Not all of them make it on the show, um, but here's one that that I heard. I thought it was just really, really interesting and really good. And it didn't fit into the, any of the ep- other episodes that we've been producing, but so I really wanted to, to highlight it today. Mm. And what's the show about? It's an independent show um, from Armenia about the stories and people of that country. So it's it's a lot has happened in Armenia over the past hundred plus years. You know, various regimes. There was the genocide. There's war. There's refugees. All kinds of crises. So there's tons of stories, endless stories to be told. Um, and it's made by three Armenian producers, and uh, one's actually Canadian as well. 
And how much did you know about what was happening and what is happening in Armenia now before listening to this show? Uh, not that much. I mean, so I knew a little bit about the Armenian genocide uh, and that there was still some tension, lingering tension in the country over that. Um, when I was in grade school, I had a friend who was from an Armenian family, and that's how I found out about the, the genocide in the first place. And then I also really like System of a Down. But that is pretty much the extent <laughs> of my familiarity with Armenia and Armenian culture um, before I, I encountered this show. So they actually made it before the current humanitarian crisis that's happening in Armenia right now. But then they actually just released a special episode just recently about what's happening and, and the refugees and, who are fleeing Nagorno-Karabakh. So why do you think people should listen to this show? Well, if you don't know already, there's a really big humanitarian crisis happening right now in Armenia. Um, there's this uh, disputed region. It's called Nagorno-Karabakh, or uh, it's known to the people of Armenia as Artsakh. Uh, Armenian people have been living there for thousands and thousands of years, but it's been in dispute for a lot of that time as well. And mm. just recently, Azerbaijan invaded and have taken over. And the Armenian population had to essentially completely evacuate the country. And I, in, uh, in their episode that they did about this, they said something really poignant, which was that for the first time in millennia, Artsakh is empty of Armenians, which I just mm. thought was so interesting and, and beautiful and sad. And so it's a really, really well-made show. It's made with a lot of heart and it's it's made by people who just love the, their country and want people to know about it and know its stories. Let's hear a bit now. Let me set the scene for what we're about to hear. Kolya is Russian by birth, but Armenian by heritage. In 2020, he moved to Armenia and volunteered for the Armenian army, knowing that war with Azerbaijan could break out at any moment. When the war came three months later, he was sent to the front and wound up trapped behind enemy lines. He and a group of other surviving soldiers hid out in an attic, cut off from the outside world, waiting to be rescued. And that's where we're going to pick up this story. Let's take a listen. One night, after they've been living in the attic for a week and been stranded for a month total, they heard a lot of gunshots. Azeris were uh, shooting in the skies, uh, like for an hour. It seemed like it was celebratory gunfire and that there had maybe been a ceasefire. They weren't sure at first, but then they also stopped hearing any artillery sounds the war appeared to be over. So after a week, we were like, okay, uh, this is it. Like, we need to do something. No one will come, we need to go somewhere. They had been holding out hope the whole time that the Armenian army would overtake the region. But there was no way that was going to happen now. The war had ended, and they were now in even more danger. Azerbaijani troops were passing through the village every day. The six of them couldn't make a sound. We would whisper all the time. We would only whisper. During the day, the group stayed in the attic, and at night, they would scavenge for food. They had covered the entrance to the attic with heavy objects to keep Azerbaijani soldiers from being able to open it, come up, and find them. But the plan wasn't foolproof. They were in the attic one day. We were sitting and eating at that moment. All of a sudden, they heard someone trying to come up to where they were hiding. Kolya looked over to his friend. 
and I look at Arman's face and he's smiling. And I'm like, I'm so pissed at him. I'm like, what, what are we gonna do? Like, we're trying to whisper somehow. And he's smiling, he's like, no, I, nothing gonna happen. After moments of tension, the soldier gave up and left. What would have happened if the guy had gotten into the roof? That would never happen. Arman knew it, and now I, I know that he was right. I don't want to imagine what would have happened if the Azerbaijani soldiers got into the attic. Kolya and the others could have been killed on the spot or taken as POWs and tortured in prison. And that's the answer I expected to hear from him. But he doesn't say any of that. What he says instead is that that wasn't their fate. That wasn't how their story was meant to go. And so why dwell on it? But they realized they couldn't stay there anymore. That night, they left the attic. Their plan was to hike west to Armenia. But first, they needed to get their bearings. They climbed a nearby mountain. And in the direction of Armenia, we could hear gunshots, we could hear people. And so we thought, like, it's impossible. Like, we can't go through those people. But to the south, they saw lights. They knew they were looking at Iran because the power was off in Artsakh. And I had this idea of uh, going to Iran. I was like, it's not that far. We can do that. Their goal was to reach the Araks River, which is on the border with Iran, then cross it to reach safety out of Azerbaijani-controlled territory. And... Yeah, we just went towards those lights. It seemed like it's our, the only way for us to live. They started walking, passing over hill after hill after hill. It was the beginning of December, and even though they had sleeping bags, it was nothing against the freezing cold wind. Once, they managed to make a fire in the fog, but most of the time, they had no source of heat. It wasn't easy. Because imagine us, we were like already dying. We had almost no food, no water, nothing. They had a paper map, but they didn't have a compass. So they couldn't be sure what direction they're walking in. And Kolya's feet were in horrible shape. They were freezing cold. We couldn't walk, like already our feet were dead. And every step we made caused a huge pain. So for us, walking wasn't easy. And those hills felt absolutely like mountains. After hiking for about 10 days, they saw an abandoned village in the distance. And we're like, maybe there is something, maybe. And we were very tired to go all of us together. So we, uh, Otto and Rus volunteered. So two of the guys volunteered to go scout it out. And after an hour or so, I remember waiting for them. It was so weird. I'm like, what the hell is going on there? And I, when they're coming back, I can see smiles on their face. And they, they are like, okay, you, you will not believe what we say. There's plenty of canned food, a lot of it, a lot of water. And then they, uh, Rus opens like, uh, uh, zips down his jacket 
and there is like cookies. We're like, wow, chocolate cookies. And it's insane. Just all over the place, there is food, there's water, there's cigarettes. Then Arman pulled out his cell phone. He had rigged it up so that he could charge it using random batteries they had found in different abandoned houses. But he had never been able to get a signal. He tried one more time. And he, he just looks at it and he's like, guys, we have connection. It, it was insanity. And then Arman calls his brother and when we heard his brother's voice, we were just six of us sitting, smoking and crying. What did he say to his brother? <laughs> ah, it was funny because he was like, uh, hey, I don't have time. Uh, I need to know if how can we can do like compass. After over two months, they're finally talking to someone. And Arma's first instinct isn't to let his brother know where they are or the state they're in. The first thing he does is ask his brother if he knows how to make a compass. They're in survival mode, and the only thing on their minds is they have to get to Iran. And then he was like, you, you check this, how to do this, how to do that, and call me back. And his brother is like, hey, wait, wait, what's, what's going on? Where are you? It was funny. They had been missing for so long that everyone back in Armenia thought they were dead. Yeah, 70 days they have nothing from us. And then like he calls and actually then his brother told us he was scared. Imagine you don't know where your brother is. He's probably dead. And then you receive a call from him. He thought it's an Azeri calling him. There were stories of Azerbaijani soldiers calling the families of dead Armenian soldiers to gloat or sending them gruesome photos. Arma's brother thought that maybe that's what this was. So it's very scary. And then he takes it and then Arman just shouts at him, where, where, how to make compass? Like, you know, it's funny. But instead of giving them compass making instructions, Arman's brother connected them to the Armenian military. And the Armenian military contacted the Russian military, who had just arrived in the region as peacekeepers. But the Russian peacekeepers couldn't just say they're going to drive in and pick up Armenian soldiers. They told that the alive people, they wouldn't let them go. So they told the Azerbaijanis that they were looking for corpses. You know, after the war, they looked for bodies. So that was uh, what they say they're doing. And that was it. The Russians drove in and collected the six of them. They were taken to a hospital in Stepanakert, the capital of Artsakh, where their families were waiting. After a few days, Kolya was moved to a military hospital in Yerevan. He stayed there for months as he slowly recovered. The war was over, but in many ways, this was even harder for him. Although he was safe, he was not unscathed. Frostbite had destroyed Kolya's feet. He had to have his legs amputated below the knee. 
Everybody else in his group also lost some part of their legs. I had met Kolya years before, but it was during his recovery that we really struck up a friendship. When we'd meet, we'd talk about everything. The political situation, our childhoods, Harry Potter. But I had never told him about the moment I found out he was alive. It came up during our interview. I just remember getting a call from my colleague. <clears throat> and I remember exactly where I was. It was dark in the evening and she called me and she said, hey, did you see the news? And I said, well, what's happened? She's like, oh, you know, they found Kodia. And I was like, what? And this was right after the war, right? And generally the mood was very like sad those times. And she said, it feels like we won the war. And I was like, yeah, it does. <laughs> It was just like such a happy moment. Like we needed something happy. And that's something that I heard the first thing we got to the hospital in Stepanakert. The doctors and everyone was like, that's the first time for a month that we are happy. I really enjoyed this. It had a very homegrown quality to it that I found really easy to connect to. Yeah, yeah. It's You can tell um, that it's made with, with a lot of love. Sometimes when things are happening and they're specifically done by the people or communities that are affected, like you said that most of the producers are Armenian, you can feel the connection and maybe the trust that a lot of the the guests and the people that they're interviewing have. Mm -hmm. um, and so you really connect to the story much more. Yeah, absolutely. We just heard a bit from the podcast Country of Dust. The show is created and produced by Nadi Abrahamian, Jeremy Dalmas, and Gohar Kachatrian with help from Gabrielle Caprielian. And this show was picked out by producer Julian Uzielli. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Leah. Okay, we did it, team. Thank you for all coming in and, and joining me today for this episode. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Leah. Yeah, this was super fun. So what podcast do you think is underrated? Tell us about it. True crime, politics, pop culture, narrative. We listen to anything and everything. I mean, we've just proved it that we answer emails and listen to those clips. So please send them to us at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca or you can find us on Facebook at CBC Podcast Playlist. Podcast playlist is Kelsey Cueva, Julian Uzielli, Kate Evans, and technical support from Miranda Williams. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Take care of yourselves. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.